Welcome to Voices of the Valley, a series interviewing growers, entrepreneurs, educators, and technologists who are inventing new solutions for today's and tomorrow's challenges on the farm. Brought to you by Reedley College, educating the next generation of agriculturalists in advanced technology, efficient production practices, and food safety. Now here's your hosts of Voices of the Valley, Dennis Donahue and Candace Wilson. Candace, we're back for another episode of Voices of the Valley. Good to see you. Nice to see you too. How are you today? I'm doing well, and I'm glad we're on top of uh, current events because this is National Honey Month. And so in light of that, I thought we'd have a special guest. And so I'm pleased to uh, welcome Dick Rogers, who's an entomologist at Bayer Crop Science. He's actually so much more than that, but you know, Dick gave me permission to say we're going to narrow it down to just that. And with that, Dick, welcome. We're uh, looking forward to our conversation. Yes, glad to be here. One of the things we like to do is, and you have a particularly interesting journey, before we get to what you're currently doing, can you talk about your background and essentially kind of your career journey to what you're doing now? And then we'll jump into that. Sure. Well, I grew up in Canada, basically grew up surrounded by orchards and agriculture. And I uh, did my degrees in Nova Scotia and Quebec, uh, Montreal specifically. And I was studying biology and math and entomology and integrated pest management. So those were my training specialties. But I also started keeping and studying honeybees about 45 years ago. So uh, a lot of my work has been dealing with both integrated pest management and honeybee health and management practices. So that work uh, eventually evolved into doing some contract work for Bayer uh, when I was uh, consulting. And eventually I joined Bayer in 2009 as an ecotoxicologist. And then from there, I moved to a bee care manager position with a focus primarily on honeybees, but that has now broadened to other insect groups, uh, pollinators, for example, and biodiversity and sustainability. So it's all part of you know, a very important package anyway. It sure is. And I wanted to, and I think it's kind of a good uh, backdrop for our conversation. I'm always, I'm always fond of telling our guests, I Googled you. And uh, so looking at your uh, LinkedIn profile, what I was struck by was your personal motto of for nature and technology and balance. And as we were talking a bit before we started re recording, that really seems to be uh, an important backdrop to uh, a lot of ag tech conversations. But this in area in, in particular, how did you get that uh, philosophy. And, and, you know, you mentioned that it's been around for a while, but it's perhaps never been more timely. Yes. Well, in the beginning, I was a bit of a nature lover, and, but I worked in agriculture and surrounded by agriculture. So I always felt that, you know, I had to have both. We had to have agriculture for our sustenance, but we needed nature for everything else. And so it just became part of my, what I believed in is that we have to have both. And technology in particular is very important to agriculture to move us from the traditional low-tech practices to a higher level of better practices because technology can not only be you know fancy tractors or computers but they can also generate data from sensors and so that's one of my leading interests actually is data generation from technology can you elaborate on that a little bit so when you talk about technology and the honeybees, like how are those two coming together for the better of agriculture? Well, I'll just start by saying that honeybees provide a very valuable service to agriculture, but beekeeping, which is 
called apiculture, it's the scientific terminology for it, is also agriculture itself. So you can't have crop production without pollination, for example, and that's provided mainly by the managed pollinator honeybees. So in the past, we kept honeybees mainly for honey production and, and some other hive products, but their main value is in pollination services. And so we can't maintain the high levels of service and colony health without a lot of data. So we can refine our management practices, our treatments, know what's going on in the hive. So technology can really help us that way. We can use technology to monitor hive weight, temperatures in the hives, and gather all that data together. Inspection records, for example, can be input into databases. So my interest is how can we bring all that data together to improve honeybee colony health and improve the, or in, at least ensure that honeybees are sustainable so they can be, you know, an input into sustainable crop production. It's is, kind of a long answer. But <laughs> no, that's, that's all right. Is, so is data at the heart of the, um, I got to make sure I get it right, the Apitech movement, because you know, I think back to the companies that we've encountered over the last couple of years, and uh, pollination isn't necessarily a part of what we do on the uh, central coast, unless it's strawberries, blueberries, that sort of thing. So I'm, I'm still kind of learning. Who, who is the customer? You know, is it the, the blue diamonds of the world? Is it the beekeepers of the world? Is it all of the above? Who's looking for what? And, uh, you know, are the uh, startups or the companies that are getting into the game now offering uh, new services or did most people feel like they had a reasonable handle on the information you outlined? Well, technology for beekeeping has been around for a decade or even a decade and a half, and it's been progressing more rapidly every year, but it still is suffering from maybe less support financially than maybe big egg companies for crop production, for example, or development of self-driving cars, all of that has a lot more financial input than sensors for beekeeping. But we're moving in the right direction and things are improving by leaps and bounds. And at some point, the technology is going to be so good for all these other things that can just be transferred over anyway to beekeeping. So I'm very optimistic that we will be able to not only generate what has been called smart hives, which, you know, have a lot of sensors communicating to the internet, but maybe move to a genius hive you know, hives that can detect certain conditions in a hive and maybe initiate feeding or send alerts to the beekeeper or, you know, do a treatment for mites, for example. I mean, these are things that uh, we can move toward. Can you talk to us a little bit about some of the, like the challenges? Why is there so much attention being given to the honeybees and, and what has been the challenges that they've faced over the years and, you know, potential implications of those two if they're not resolved? Yeah, well, the challenges to for honeybee colony health and is um, driven by a number of factors. A couple of them would be the demand for pollinating insect pollinated crops has increased substantially. So there's a lot of pressure for beekeepers to increase their numbers, and often, you know, at times of the year when increasing colony numbers is not optimal. So that's one kind of stressor or challenge. The other is that since the mid 1980s. And through the global movement of bee stocks and other commodities, we've transferred or brought in uh, things like varroa mites, which is a parasitic bee mite, and tracheal mite, which is another parasitic bee mite. 
and various new viruses and diseases and beetles that are causing problems in hives. So since the mid-1980s, a lot of things have changed. And these have been challenges because we haven't been used to dealing with them. The honeybee has not evolved to deal with them. So we have to, as beekeepers and researchers, we have to help the bees survive and do well. So those are some of the challenges. Um, I think the honeybee would survive on its own without any assistance, but the numbers of colonies would drop and we wouldn't have commercial beekeeping operations, which can increase the numbers and transport them to where they're needed. So it would just be like natural background of honeybees. And that may not be sufficient for commercial crop pollination. Is the gathering of data and getting that information on the part of the beekeepers, does that differ from what, let, let's say, a grower might be looking for in terms of the type of information they're looking relative to a pollinator? So for instance, let's say I was with a venture firm and I was trying to figure this all out because there are a number of pretty good startups. And, uh, you know, I freely admit that it takes me a while to figure things out. But after a while, you kind of are sorting out, okay, who's doing what as you learn this world? And does everyone want the same data or are, you know, grower shippers, processors, are they looking for something different? There's a lot of overlap, actually. But let's just consider a crop producer. They are generating data now through various technology offerings and bears, you know, has its own platform for delivering technology, but they're looking at data uh, such as field conditions, like what are the moist parts of the fields? Where do they need to apply fertilizer? Where are the pests located? And then there's tractor speed, seeding rates. I mean, all of those things generate data and it's all used in, you know, crop production to be efficient and effective and increase yields. Then there's the background of the marketing side of it and the transportation side of it. So there's tracking containers, there's tracking equipment, there's traceability initiatives for food. So if you look at the beekeeping side of it, they have similar types of needs, uh, especially for timing management actions. So they need data on mite numbers. They need data on weight of the hive so they know when they have to put on equipment to collect honey or take it off. And also uh, when queens are failing and when they need to be replaced. Uh, so there's a lot of that kind of production data that's needed. But then you also get into uh, labeling your products, tracking your equipment. I mean, when you're a beekeeper with thousands, maybe tens of thousands of hives, you have to know where they are, which ones were treated, which ones were inspected, which ones are productive. And they're spread all over the country on top of that. So Data is very important. When you look back on the last five years and you've talked so much about technology and the new introductions of technology, what are some of the major strides or areas that you feel most proud of in the beekeeping world? What has been the most impactful for bee health? I think things like electronic scales, uh, there are several offerings there that have really helped beekeepers track weight gain and loss in hives. And so that's been very helpful. I mean, it's still too expensive a technology to install on every single hive, but in areas where you keep hives, you can install these on a certain percentage to give you a pretty good indication of what's happening overall. The other things that are really progressing well are in-hive sensors for detecting temperature and relative humidity. And uh, these can be installed in several locations within a hive so you know where the brood is located. It will tell you if there is brood. If the queen is performing well, you can also install things like acoustic sensors 
flight uh, detectors for counting uh, arrivals and departures of bees at the entrance. Mm. And in the future, I envision things like chemical sensors for detecting pheromones or environmental pollutants in a hive. All of these things are probably in the future, maybe within the next 10 years. So That's neat. How do you know if a queen is performing well? Well, it's often a combination of visual inspection, but you can also get early warnings of a queen not performing well simply by brood temperature dropping off. So if the consistent temperature of the brood goes below a certain level, that means the brood is not present or it's being greatly reduced. And if that's the case, then the queen is the producer of the brood. So that means she's probably failed. And so that can give a beekeeper early warning of a queen issue. And the sooner you fix that problem, the sooner you can salvage that colony or or correct that disorder. You've laid out a lot of, and in some respects, I don't know if it's fair to say, kind of a surprising amount of technology throughout the whole process. I mean, you're touching all the bases, data, satellite sensors. What's the adoption rate look like in the... uh, the beekeeping world. I mean, where, where are we? So for instance, you mentioned within 10 years, there'll be new technologies. How does, what's adoption look like? Because beekeepers are a kind of an independent breed themselves, aren't they? Uh, and yes. uh, so what, what's adoption look like? Well, you always have pioneers in any group and beekeepers have their pioneers. And so the adoption rate among the pioneers is very high. But the problem is that the technology, like I said, is not It hasn't been well-funded in the past, although it's becoming better funded now and the technologies are improving. But things like reliability and durability and longevity and connectivity, all of those things and more play into this idea of, is a beekeeper going to invest money into this suite of technologies to help improve their management decisions? And I've been looking at technology for hives for 12, 13 years now. And my reason for getting involved is because we need more than just visual inspections. We need data that's automatically generated. And the problem I ran into was some stuff worked, some didn't. It wasn't integrated, so you could get data from different sources coming together in a meaningful way. And if you instrumented or added devices to all of your hives, it's just not There's no system for automatically summarizing it or analyzing it. So you don't have to spend all day, every day looking at thousands of numbers. It's just too overwhelming. But we're moving beyond that now. And with things like data warehouses and better analytical tools that help you bring the data together and then summarize it and actually visualize it so you can see a chart, you know, in almost real time. And that can tell you so much. So one of the, my current project is actually working on that idea, which is bringing data from at least three different sources via three different connectivity methods into a central database. And the next phase will be to look at, you know, how can we best analyze this and produce, automate it so you can get alerts that say simply high risk of queen failure or time to feed or, you know, something like that. So you don't have to be crunching the numbers yourself. And uh, we're actually incorporating satellite connectivity this time for one of our innovative sensors, which is a contact sensor, which has never been installed on a hive before. So this is very exciting stuff and it has so many applications. 
One of the questions that I have is you talked so much about the technology that Bayer is working with and how is Bayer collaborating with the industry and are, are there any other specific groups or associations that you guys are partnering with to bring new technology to the market? Well, in the beginning, Bayer had quite a focus on honeybee colony health, primarily because there was a sense that we didn't know what was going on. But we do know what's going on now. And so we transitioned to, went through a phase of transitioning to how can we monitor better? And you know what kind of processes can we improve? And from there, we've progressed now to the digital side of things. So we're trying to partner with companies like Wild Networks, which is you know, a fairly new satellite connectivity company. And we've worked with Solution B, which is an electronic scale company, and Broodminder, another scale company. And then there's a bunch of a whole different groups of startups and new companies dealing with sensors for temperature and, and relative humidity and, and other measurements. And then there are companies like Hivetrax, which is a record-keeping company for beekeepers. So it's, and then there are other ones besides them. So the numbers of offerings is really expanding and, and sometimes it's kind of overwhelming. So I feel one of my jobs is to kind of try these different things and evaluate them and try to you know, filter them to get something that works. Standardization is a big thing. So you know, it's just like cars that you have a whole bunch of different types of cars, but they all have based on standards, you know, so I'm pushing for that to happen in the B industry. You know, it's, it's interesting if I think back on, uh, you know, a lot of the startups we've seen, you know, this is obviously a global conversation, a global discussion on, on pollination. And it seems like, a, you know, a number of countries have their own really good startup or startups. Uh, mm -hmm. So that issue of operability and the standardization, is that there yet? Or does that need to, to come? And then, then the other question I would have is, how do you kind of sort through uh, the various startups there? You know, I, I mean, they all have their own area of emphasis, but is it going to be a big enough space? I mean, it sounds like, you know, if you do the right job, then you're, then you're basically, how's your business model? How's your relation sales and service relationships? And as long as you're doing the basics, you probably have got a good opportunity or is it a game that's going to require consolidation over time? We will have to see some standards developed. Because I think there is room for multiple brands and multiple startups and, and companies. And since the adoption, current adoption rate is you know, low overall, but very high with the, the pioneer group, there's lots of potential to expand. But one of the issues is it doesn't matter how good a sensor is and what, how good that data is, it's still only one or two pieces of data. And there's many other sources of data on other things that are still relevant. So how do you bring those together? Or you may have competing temperature sensors, for example. Are they going to communicate with a central database? And how is that data recorded and cleaned and passed along and aggregated and interpreted? So these things have to be sorted out. Shifting gears a little bit, we chat a little bit again before we got on the air. And what is the impact of you know, regardless of how folks view the uh, the conversation politically, everybody I know in agriculture, I think we can all agree that uh, we certainly seem to be passing through a period of a lot more extremes. And, and so it's useful for the conversation. How does climate change impact the bee world, if, if at all? Yes, um, climate change uh, is a big concern. Uh, I recently 
co-authored a paper on the effects of climate change on bee flight, for example, the flight behavior as impacted by warming temperatures. And just from that, we were able to tell based on temperature changes alone and flight thresholds for honeybees that the increase in flight time in the northern climate, northern regions of the earth have increased far more than the more central areas. And so what that tells us is that beekeeping and crop production may be able to move north over time and be quite successful. But we also will run into warming temperatures in the central regions where flight time is high now, but as temperatures exceed the upper limit thresholds, the flight times could be reduced. So there's this kind of reverse thing happening. But other than that, climate change can cause flooding and drought, wildfires, movement of plants and animals are changing their distribution in different regions. And even though honeybees are highly adaptable, uh, they will still be faced with challenges with these changing uh, food resources, which are the plants. So we, we don't know what the full repercussions will be yet, but we're trying to you know, work on these. I know NAPSI, the North American Pollinator Protection Campaign, has a climate and pollinators task force, which I'm sitting on, and we're discussing these things and hope to write a white paper in the near future after reviewing all the literature and all the different research. And, and we want to identify gaps uh, in our knowledge and make you know some forecasts about how climate change will influence not only honeybees, but other bee species. And uh, so without you know, it's hard to be too specific other than look at temperature change and see how it, and all these other environmental changes that are going to be taking place and try to predict how that could impact. You, you mentioned uh, species. other bee species. That, that was the other thing, you know, as you recall, we did a, an event last summer, all, actually all three of us participated in, you know, Flight of the Honeybees with the uh, Silicon Valley Network. And, uh, mm, yes. uh, and one of the things I was struck by, just the sheer number of different species uh, with honeybees. Talk a little bit about that world. Uh, well, people um, are always saying honeybees, referring to them as there's only one one honeybee in existence. But actually, there are currently identified seven species. I mean, that changes with you know how you describe the species. But right now, it's generally considered to be seven, with 46 subspecies. So that's a a lot of different kinds of honeybees. And on top of that, you have a total of 20,000 or more species of bees in general. Most of them are solitary species. And so all of these have their own, you know, food sources, their own special relationship with their environments. And when you start messing with the climate, you're also messing with their interrelationships uh, with plants and and other insects uh, and animals. So it's just like stirring a pot of, you know, colored balls. There's going to be some reorganization taking place and we don't know what the outcome is going to be. Do you know anything, this is kind of changing gears, but do you know anything about like the little baby drone bees that are starting to, people are starting to mess around with? Is that a real thing? Baby drone bees. Hmm. I don't know if they're called baby drone bees (laughs) here that, for example, in the, you know, in the glass house production industry, there's like little robot bees (laughs) that are flying around, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Technology bees. Yeah. Yeah. Technology bees. There you go. Uh, yeah, there are definitely are some attempts to develop, you know, robotic bees. And uh, I think that's very cool, but 
I, I don't know where that's going to go. It, it, it requires miniaturization and building in some kind of decision-making capabilities. So yeah, it's, that's kind of a over my head. <laughs> but, that's okay. It's over my head too, clearly. <laughs> well, we haven't even figured out AI for humans, much less much less be, yeah. you know, yeah. so. Uh, yeah, I no, do, I, no more trick questions. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, Candace was, Candace was waiting a bit to uh, spring that on you. She told me about it ahead of time. She was going to get you. Of course, my, it's, mine's not a trick question. You know, I'm fascinated by the bee deal, and it's always interesting to talk to an actual beekeeper. And I'm going to guess you've actually put that outfit on and with a net, and uh, I just can't see my, as much as I'd like to go visit and learn about hives, I can't see myself doing that. Talk a little bit about how not dangerous that actually is, because from the outside, <laughs> it looks intimidating to me. Yeah, it's not dangerous if you treat it like any dealing with any hazard. If you're a firefighter, you dress accordingly and you can enter burning houses safely. Uh, there's always a risk. But Or if you're jumping from an airplane, you have a parachute. So that very dangerous activity is done safely. And it's the same with bees. Even with very aggressive strains of bees, like Africanized bees, you can work with them if you wear the proper equipment. And I really condone wearing full safety gear, gloves, hood, full outfits. And, you know, don't give the bees any chance to sting you. That way you, you will be more confident and you can work with the bees and be more gentle with them. And everybody's happy. But, you know, there, there always is any beekeeper, even fully protected beekeepers, they do either make mistakes or get stung even through their equipment. So you're always going to get stung as a beekeeper. And I've been stung thousands of times. And once sir, I had a systemic reaction and ended up in emergency care. But that just, you know, convinced me uh, that, yes, you know, protective equipment is essential and you don't get lazy and, and not wear something someday, you know, well, going to the you, hive. You're certainly your reinforcing. <laughs> uh, and, my, and my impression is everyone I, you know, talk to in the beekeeping world, they're, they're pretty passionate and, you know, in the end kind of have a love affair with it. So, so to, to put up with getting stung a thousand times, that's got to be true. Oh yeah, yeah, it is. But it doesn't mean people have to be afraid of them either. If you see bees foraging on plants, they're not aggressive. They're performing the job of collecting food for the hive. And so you can actually go up to bees on flowers and gently stroke their wings as they're foraging and they won't be aggressive. Hmm. Uh, and it's just like uh, firefighters going into buildings, but you can also observe a burning building from a distance and it's safe. So it's just a matter of doing what is safe. And uh, if you're just a, you don't know anything about honeybees or bees in general, and you rush up to a beehive and open the lid, you're going to get stung. That's all there is to it. So right. you have to Fair know what you're doing. Fair enough. Candace, I have one last question, but before I get to that, uh, anything else on your mind? I think you can wrap things up, Dennis. All right. You know, Dick, the, the other thing is, and you've alluded to it when you're talking about flowers and plants, what is uh, the correlation between bees and, and strategies, whether to increase bee health, bee population, and natural habitat. For instance, in California, I know we have the California pollinators group that's working on that with a real heavy emphasis on natural habitat flowers, and bears heavily involved in that, that mm -hmm. as well. Talk, talk a little bit about just the environment and bees and that relationship. Well, of course, habitat is one of the requirements for healthy animals and sustainable populations. So 
with honeybees and cropping, to sustain the higher numbers of honeybees, we need more habitat to provide food for them. So that's part of the reason why they're trying to plant habitat under power lines and between the rows of crops, uh, could be almonds or apples or any crop in particular. But in the process of doing that, it also provides habitat for other species of bees, other insects in general, and that supports greater biodiversity. Eventually, you'll get other animals moving in, and it can also be establishing set-aside land, which can transition to a different type of forage and a different type of habitat, which gives you a diversity of ecosystems. And we need all of that for sustaining biodiversity in insects and in animals in general, and, and of course, uh, human populations. Well, you know, this is certainly uh, an important area. You know, working for Bayer, you probably got a little better handle on the numbers than I do, but I think the working number is at least at least a third of our food. Ha- you know, there's a derivative that takes you back to uh, the bee world. So uh, healthy bees is a critical part of food supply uh, in the coming decades. So it's, it's an important conversation. Yeah, that, that's actually a good tie-in with the change in cropping systems uh, in your area in the West. I think you're moving away from certain staple crops to more specialty crops, and those are typically insect-pollinated crops. So then pollinators become even more important in, in that case, and bigger contributors as an input to you know producing those crops. So yeah, it's all very important. Well, we appreciate your your time. We wanted to uh, get smarter uh, in honor of uh, National Honey Month. There's a lot of technology and innovation going on in that regard. Bayer certainly in, in the middle of all that. And we see a lot of global activity from the startup standpoint. So we, uh, we wanted to visit with one of the experts and uh, you more than lived up to that. And we appreciate your time. Well, thank you very much. Uh, it was a pleasure talking to you. And uh, I look forward to doing this again sometime. Sounds good. We'll look forward to that as well. Candice? Thank you so much for joining us today. And, well, it's uh, nice to be here. Thank you, Candace. And, and Candace, just for grins, why don't we uh, come back and do it again next week? Let's do it. All right. See you in the next go around of Voices of the Valley. Thanks for listening to the Voices of the Valley podcast, brought to you today by Reedley College. To learn more about Reedley College's Agriculture and Natural Resources program and the courses offered in ag technology, food safety, and plant science, you can visit ReedleyCollege.edu.